Hello and welcome to another special lockdown episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. However, once in a while, I jettison this self-imposed format and chat with someone who possesses an overview of the design world. Today, it gives me huge pleasure to talk to Sheridan Coakley. The entrepreneur cut his teeth as a modern furniture dealer before founding SCP, or Sheridan Coakley Products, in London Shoreditch in 1985. The manufacturer and retailer burst on the nascent British contemporary design scene with pieces by Jasper Morrison and Matthew Hilton. In 1991, it produced the latter's Balzac armchair, which has gone on to become a bona fide classic. Sheridan opened a contract division in 1995 and more recently launched a new store on the Pimlico Road. The roll call of designers he's worked with includes Constantine Grittich, James Irvine, Michael Marriott, Donna Wilson, Rachel Whiteread and Reiko Kaneko, to name just a handful. He's undoubtedly been one of the most influential figures in British design for the past 35 years. Sheridan, thanks so much for doing this. You're perfectly welcome. Hello. Uh, did I get everything right? Uh, yes, you probably know the dates better than I do. Um, <laughs> I've, I've got a timeline. I printed off an old timeline we did for a sh- uh, an exhibition once just to double check that I get the, the dates right. Good. Well, I nicked them all off your website, so I'm hoping they're right. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, this podcast um, kind of isn't about the virus. We're trying to uh, distract people from it uh, to get away from some of the more uh, disturbing headlines that we're seeing. But uh, mm. we can't really ignore it by the same token. Um, mm. So can we talk about how it's affected your business and, and how you're coping? Um, like all retail stores, we we had to shut the day that the, the, the government enforced the lockdown. Um, our retail business has kind of virtually disappeared. We had to furlough all our retail staff. Um, the store is still there and we're kind of using it as a, as a kind of base um, to partly deal with our web sales, which inevitably like most people have websites that business has increased um and as a a a place where we're still getting deliveries and still so we're kind of still functioning on that level the um, upholstery factory had to close um immediately for really for a couple of reasons i suppose partly because of the there was a kind of general panic about how one should work and, and and should one work and and also that our suppliers started to not be able to work also but we're starting to open up again next week we've readjusted the whole factory layout um staff are being trained to work in a different way right they everybody has their own tools so it's it's a pretty safe it, it was a pretty safe environment anyway and uh hopefully they're going to get back into production next weeks to make uh the orders that we have but yeah i mean it's had a massive effect i mean i i would suspect our business has been halved right and probably will be for the foreseeable future yeah yeah so where are you talking from at the moment um i'm at home in um, my house in hampshire near uh uh near the downs between sort of winchester and petersfield mm. which is very nice i have to say yeah, because it's quite interesting. You have this. Obviously, you're living in this kind of rural idyll, and yet your mm. your working environment is is kind of gritty shortage. Yeah, I, but I've always kind of lived that way. I mean, I've always loved the countryside. Always wanted to 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 live that kind of life. Um, but at the same time, you know, in a contemporary world, um, I've been lucky to since we moved out mm. of London twenty five years ago to have to be able to do that. 
I mean, can we can we talk a bit about your your background, Sheridan? Uh, your father was in bubblegum, right? He was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were you ever tempted into the same the same business? Uh, well, I did actually work for him for for about eighteen months. Actually, um, my grandfather was kind of a entrepreneur showman, and he was a song plugger and was managed people in the musical business, and so he was always looking for the main chance. And after the war, when my dad was in his early twenties, um, when sugar rationing came off, he got my father and his brother into making toffee apples <laughs> they hmm. thought there was a you know there, suddenly the sugar was available what can you do with people really wanted sugar and um i don't know what how the story was but i think when my uncle was in america he met a man who knew something about making bubble gum and the next thing they know they'd bought a machine and had opened up a small factory in crickerwood making bubble gum and um that then kind of grew quite successfully and they produce picture cards you know the kind you get with a you've got a, a flat piece of bubble gum with a with picture cards usually of footballers or a batman or the beatles or something yeah, yeah. Like that. so that was the business they had and um when i was about 18 i went 19 i think i went and worked for them for just over a year running their art department um with no real experience but you know i was I, I don't know. Uh, they, my father thought that it would be an interesting job for me to do, and I had nothing better to do. And um, I kind of developed their own art department, whereas before they were using the American. There was an American company they had a license with who produced a lot of mm. these kind of things. And so I did that for about eighteen months. Yeah. And so, did you live in Cricklewood, or was that where the factory was? As a baby, I was brought up in Cricklewood, and then moved to Mill Hill, as one did if you became got a bit of money um, yeah, yeah yeah so my sort of childhood years were spent in uh, the suburbs of london which i i loved wasn't there a, an anecdote about you those bubblegum cards and eduardo palazzi well yes they the the american company that we had a license for used to they they produced a line called nutty initials which was peel off stickers of, of letters of the alphabet and they were drawn by one of the uh, artists from mad magazine and um uh, I got a call from Eduardo Palazzi one day, phoned up and saying, could uh, he have a set of the, the stickers? Could he wanted to use them in an artwork? I was 19. I, to be honest, I didn't even know who he was. Mm. And um, so I sent him a box. And then he turned up at the factory one day because it happened to be quite near where his um, silk screeners were in East London and um, gave me a huge... Uh, silk screen, which I've still got. Of hmm. Who's a grave? I think it's called Who's Who's Afraid of Sugar Green and Lime Pink. And he signed it, and then he invited me to his retrospective at the Tate, and then I realised who he was. Hmm. None of the clippings that I've read about you, Sheridan, talk about your school or education. Um, were you academic? Did you go to university? No, no, I didn't even finish my A levels. Um, <laughs> I was a product of a generation that thought that. If you made a bit of money to better yourself, you should send your children to private school. And I went to two boarding schools. Uh, the second one was called Berkhamsted, and I spent the entire time there trying to get out. You know, it was <laughs> it was at a time when the world was really changing, and you know, private schools were not where you wanted to be as a as a young teenager. And um, I managed to persuade my dad when I was sixteen to leave after. Uh, 
what were O-levels then, um, and go to a local college in St Albans and do my A-levels, which I did. And that's kind of changed my life, actually. That's when I suddenly met all my friends. At the, there was a good art school in St Albans, mm. um, and I met a lot of friends there, still lifelong friends, and that kind of changed my life. That and, you know, the various recreational drugs that were available or <laughs> you wanted to try and find in those days. And then I, I, I did as little as possible as I could at uh, college and, um, and just gave up before my A-levels. Right. And, uh, yeah, I didn't think it was, you know, there was, there was too much else going on at the time. There was, there was, it was an exciting time and it was, it was not a time that you worried about what you were going to do in the future. You know, the, 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 this is kind of the, you know, late sixties. Um, mm. so, you know, the, the, it was an exciting time to be young. So was there an interest in design already developing at this stage? Uh, what I did want to be was a photographer. I, I'd been, uh, taking pictures and processing pictures at home since I was about 14. And, uh, it was something I tried to do. I tried to get into the you know, to, to work with a photographer. I, I did work with a photographer for a bit as a teenager. Um, and I wanted to get into that or films, but, um, it, it didn't happen, but it was, you know, I was interested in art and I had lots of friends who were either musicians or artists in one way or the other. So I was, I was immersed in that kind of world. Um, but not able to kind of, um, be good enough to, to, to strike out and do something on my own. Um, so I, I kind of fell into being an and well became an antique dealer, I suppose. Mm. Um, more by chance, more by more on the basis that I wanted to find a way of earning a living without actually having to get a job or be a part <laughs> of 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 you know of. It was very much sort of them and us. Then there was you know there was the the alternative society, which I think is how we used to describe ourselves. It was an underground and I was kind of a part of that, of IT magazine, art events in London. Mm. Um, and so there wasn't a great urge to want to get a, a job, a traditional job. So I found myself selling some old photographs that I collected. I used to pick up photographs at markets and things. Then I found myself going, so I used to go and do markets selling my photographs and uh, old photographs. And then as I went round various places like along the South Coast, because I had a girlfriend down in Brighton, um, I'd visit auction houses and junk shops. And I started to just instinctively buy things. I had a truck. I used to have, I had a big old, what was called British Road Services truck, um, like a seven-ton truck. And I'd find myself at auctions and nobody would be buying something. And I would just say, put my hand up and I'd end up buying a wardrobe or a dining <laughs> table or and I would take it up to Portobello Road. And on Saturday, I had a, a stall down the, down Portobello Road. And I would sell things. And just gradually, I started to buy things that I liked, which tended to be arts and crafts, early 20th century stuff. Um, and I kind of educated myself. I started to buy books, second, you know, uh, secondhand books, and find out well, what this stuff was. Um, and gradually kind of immersed myself in early 20th century design um more by default than anything else i suppose and um found that i really enjoyed buying and selling these things and mm. finding things um and uh, then i eventually got a little shop in hollywood road selling vintage stuff um what we call vintage stuff now um and started to focus in on a lot of tubular steel furniture there was um, 
uh, you know, it it was that kind of that whole modernist thing was very interesting to me then. Right. And um, and I used to start. So I started to buy tubular steel furniture as well, which then led me on to eventually how I ended up making furniture. Well, I was going to ask you about this because yeah, SCP really was founded on repairing, but but also uh, intriguingly kind of copying classics I've, I've read. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, I was the, there wasn't much interest in, in the UK with, with the kind of things I was selling. I was mainly selling to uh, dealers who had shops in Berlin and in Paris and in America. Um, but these weren't serious entities. These, these were people like me who were buying kind of alternative. Uh, this is alternative to modern furniture. It was mm. a cheaper way of buying something which was interesting. Um, uh, so you could buy a, you know, a tubular steel dining chair for 10 quid and I might sell it for 20 pounds. And, and it might happen to be designed by Marcel Breuer. I mean, it was not, kind of, that was kind of lower down the list. That When I was first starting, it was really just a matter of, is that a nice chair that you could actually use in your home and is relatively well-priced? Um, but gradually I started to mix with other people and you do inevitably when you find things out that certain things are more valuable than others. Um, but at that stage, I was, if I had a chair, which was rusty, I'd get it re-chromed mm. because why would you want a rusty chair in your house? You might as well, if you can restore it, restore it. So, um, I started to restore secondhand tuber steel. And then I realized that actually, well, the company that made a lot of the British stuff was a company called Pell. Um, and they still existed. And I phoned them up and I went up to their factory and, they were quite amused by it, but I started to, they were closing down. Tubular Steel, uh, Pell was a massive company, which was shrinking after the war. Um, so I bought a lot of old original pieces from various buildings that they were shutting down, which I then took down to London and sold. Mm. And eventually I said, well, I thought it, if I'm re restoring this stuff, why don't I just make it from new? Um, because there'd be no difference. It'd be exactly the same. Um, and I asked Pell if they would mind a, if I did this, and again, they they was more amused by the idea that anybody yeah. would actually want to make anything that they designed thirty years ago or 40, 50 years ago. Um, so yes, I, I launched a a, a a very small range of English Pell tubular steel furniture, mainly a chair by called um, by a, a designer called Leopold Quitner, which is a stacking chair, okay. the chair that you see at um, Wimbledon. You know that, or they used to use a wooden oh, yeah. the chair yeah, with yeah. the canvas seat. Yeah. Okay. You kind of quoted it. I can't remember which article it was in, but uh, saying that uh, you're able to sell a good quality Corbusier shares to someone who'd never think of buying an official one. That's a bit further down the line. That was <laughs> that was by the time I got to Curtain Road, um, right? And and opened the store in Curtain Road, and um, yeah, I mean it's the, the as I as I was kind of learning and working my way through this this world that I found myself in um i started to realize that the real classic pieces of the of, of the modernist period were mainly people by you know designs by Eileen gray or by, by charlotte perry and um or marcel breuer or mies van der Rohe, and they were not made in the uk and they and and they were some of it was still being made um but they were extremely expensive mm. um and uh, I managed to find a company in Italy that um, that made exactly the same things as all the others. In fact, using the same factories as a lot of the, the people like Casina and Knoll used, um, but selling it at a 
reasonable price, not at this kind of what I thought were crazy prices. So, yeah, I we were we were selling Cabuchet chaise longs or Charlotte Perrin chaise longs for I don't know four hundred pounds as opposed to eighteen hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah. But there was really there was no difference. There was really no difference, and I felt at the time, and I well, it's a whole nother world. I I, I felt that you know Casino had invented a kind of monopoly, which they they were ending up turning out elitist furniture. And I thought, well, you know, I'd like to democratize this. Mm. And um, and at one point, Habitat were buying them off. Well, Conran were buying them from me, Conran shop, and then Habitat were buying them. So there were, you know, there was one of the great chairs that was designed in the early 20th century being sold through Habitat to people who probably never heard of Charlotte Perrin or Cabussier, but they were buying it because they liked it and the price was right, mm. which I totally justified everything I did at the time. <laughs> Presumably when you see these campaigns that pop up periodically, I know L Decoration did one in about 2012 against copying yeah. and design. It yeah. must produce a wry smile. Uh, it kind of annoyed me actually. And, and uh, it, 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 it's not a subject I often bring up with fellow designer or designers that I work with because everybody gets very, everybody has gets hot under the collar about it. And I totally understand, but, but when something my view was, and I, I, I don't want to kind of enter into a kind of big argument with people. But my view was that the the law that used to be was that when <clears throat> when a, a a product that could be commercially produced and wasn't patentable had been out in the market for fifteen or I forgot what it was, fifteen or twenty years under a license exclusive license after that time surely it should fall into the public domain and mm. anybody should be able to make it at a reasonable price and that was the logic that i stuck to and until the law was changed which was only a couple of years ago which was lobbied by guess who you know the the, the big you know the casinos the knolls um uh, of this world they managed to change the law in the eu and uh, extend the copyright now to 70 years after the death of designer which is great for designers. Mm. Have people copied SCP's designs? Uh, they do, and I stop them if I can. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah, but it's a uh, uh, it's you know design copyright is quite is quite interesting, and uh, uh, in America it's very open. It's very. I mean, I think it would be virtually impossible to uh, to put a copyright on Jasper's design, Jasper Morrison's designs, or some of the minimalist designs. Mm. Um, Mm. But it's kind of gone as far as I'm, you know, that was, that was in a way at the time, it was a means to an end for me to get to make the, the other part of the business that I was developing, which was working with designers, um, pay for itself. Yeah. As you've said, you started out in Westbourne Grove, but you set up SCP in Shoreditch, uh, East mm. London in 1985. Mm. Um, why there? Um, because the chrome plater that I used to use to re-chrome all the, the old pieces of Pell was in Rivington Street in Shoreditch. And so I would be driving over there, you know, once a week to pick up stuff. And, um, you know, sure, it, it was a desolate place then, but pretty much like it is today, I should think, um, under, the, under the virus cloud that we live. Mm. Shoreditch was one of the furniture-making districts of, uh, well, the furniture-making district of London around the city. Um, uh, which, sure, it was furniture and shoes, and up till the Second World War, 
most of the buildings in Shoreditch were related to the furniture industry in one way or the other, whether they were um, veneer suppliers, whether they were um, ironmongers or tool shops or workshops. But after the Second World War, most of them had disappeared and gone out of business. By the time I was going there in the early 80s, the there were still a few businesses left, and this engineering company that made tubular steel furniture, as it happened, were were still there, and um, they were one of the few crown platers in London. So that's how I got to know the area. And right, every time right. I went over there, I, I would look at it and think, "This is a really interesting." It was like I'd been to New York um, in the seventies to you know Soho, and it was very reminiscent of what Soho was like then. You know, big, beautiful. Victorian industrial spaces or turn of the century industrial spaces completely empty um, and in in those days in, in obviously New York was ahead of what happened in Shoreditch in terms of people artists moved in illegally and started to mm. to trade and live there and that's what I kind of entered that world in Shoreditch just as it was about to start mm. Mm. and why this change from selling classics to making pieces from young designers um, because um, Matthew Hilton came and knocked at my door one day actually and no that's well that was partly it um i i quite liked it but i i, I met a french a guy i was selling the tuba steel stuff to in paris when i went to visit him in paris he's he took me for a drink at the cafe cost which was philippe stark's first major project in paris and it was a cafe cafe cost and I, when I walked in there, I sat for the first time. I really looked at contemporary furniture, and I thought, "Wow, this is you know." It the, I, I felt this really strong connection between what I was doing with the modernist thing and the furniture that Stark originally designed with Bellaria Italia. Yeah, um, and I thought, "Well, this is this was interesting," and I and I got hold of the company in Italy, Bellaria Italia, and and um, I asked if I could sell their furniture in London, and and they said yes. Um, and that's at the same time I was I had just taken on the space in Curtain Road to use as a kind of warehouse, really, as a place to put stuff. Um, and uh, I ended up having a kind of party and launching the uh, Philippe Stark's furniture there. Mm. So that was kind of my first introduction to contemporary. And then from that, uh, Matthew Hilton did. Matthew came to the party actually, and Jasper, who Morrison, who I already knew when I had my shop in Westbourne. Park Road. Um, he used to sell me books, um, and um, Jasper used uh, to sell you books. Yeah, well, I think as a, he, I think he was. There was a bookshop called David Batterham, who was a book dealer. I think he might. I don't know if he's still around actually. Um, and uh, Jasper used to wander in, and I used to buy. He used to sell me, you know, interesting studio annuals or you know modernist the period books from mm. early twentieth century. Mm. I don't think, I mean, he was still at the Royal College. He wasn't a book dealer. It wasn't a kind of book runner, but I think there was just a way of getting to know each other or he just happened to be buying books for himself. I'm not sure. Was he a good salesman? Well, you know what he's like. He's got a good <laughs> patter, isn't he? <laughs> you, you, have, you, you have to tell him to shut up all the time. He goes on and on. Um, <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, but so... So, yeah, I mean, it was literally, it was the day after the party, Matthew came round and introduced himself and um, and showed me some of the designs. And then it was in a very rapid, it was very rapid because, you know, 100 yards away was a little engineering factory that could make the furniture. So it just kind of started like that. 
you know, with no real logic of what we were going to, I was going to do with it, but um, it just seemed the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So, can you paint a picture for us and the listeners? It's 1985. Uh, Memphis was launched in Milan four years earlier. What did the British design scene look like at the time? Well, put it from my perspective, I really hadn't joined it, I suppose. Um, but uh, I don't. I don't. There really wasn't very much of one, or if, if there was, there was this this new generation that um, of people like Tom Dixon, of Ron Arad, Andre Dubray, Mark Brazier Jones, Matthew and Jasper, who were all kind of coming through. Uh, either just come through art school or or had had recently come through it and um i think there was a kind of a general feeling that you know britain was still the the poor man of europe sick man of europe and the the really people in the uk bought antiques they didn't buy contemporary furniture um the the only kind of contemporary design that was going on was would might be in architecture and that would be in commercial buildings not in domestic um and everybody looked towards Italy. Um, so I think, I mean, the, the, I suppose the designers will speak for themselves, but the, there wasn't much market for them to join. And a lot of designers were designer makers. You know. mm. uh, in fact, I think all those people I mentioned were designer makers um, or designers, and then they would get things made, as it were. There was no industry to join as such. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm kind of I kind of fitted into that scene, I suppose, um, and I, you know, I think I kind of fell I, like I fell into a lot of things in my life. I think I, I just kind of fell into it through, through the story of how I'd got to Curtain Road. Um, so to me, selling modern furniture was like selling the vintage stuff. I, I immediately thought of uh, the people I sold to in Germany and in America um, and in France. Um, but I didn't know how to sell it. So the only, I suppose, the customers I did have in the UK were mainly architects, were architects either buying things for themselves um, or, if possible, persuading commercial clients to have a bit of contemporary furniture or a caboose chaise long in their buildings. Um, and then, so it was pretty barren. You know, we were warm beer and cricket, I think, was how... <laughs> John Major described as I can't remember. Yes, yes, um, no, he did, he did. Yeah, uh, I mean, the scene. It, it always seems to me that it felt quite small. Everybody seemed to know each other. Uh, you know, Peter Savile did your logo, and uh, how yeah. did that happen, for instance? Uh, he wandered into my shop in Westbourne Grove one day, and um, and offered, said I needed a logo, and and would I was I prepared to sell him an old Pell desk? I think it was that I just relacquered myself. Um, and um, I said, well, why not? You know, and um, I got to know him. In fact, he wor I worked with him for a long time, for right up to when he joined Pentagram, I think. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, so it, it, it was a very small scene. It was a kind of an underground. I mean, it was, it was like a lot of the things that were going on in those days with music and fashion. There was, a, there was this British um, underground, which eventually kind of, escape from the uk into the rest of the world um and and i think in in the design world it was more um a, a way of defense because there was no market like i said before there was no industry for people to go into um so we just kind of made it up ourselves mm. i mean you obviously weren't doing it for the money sheridan at this point or at any point i'm guessing um 
Well, I always you always need money, um, and I, I. But I guess, I don't know. I was I had I had a capacity to live within whatever means I had, and it never really bothered me. Uh, I somehow managed to find the money to make a new design, but I, I never had a I never had a serious plan. I never had a serious ambition to to um, well to even have a eventually have an exit strategy this wasn't it was what i did it wasn't a, a means to an end yeah um, yeah you know i was a late developer basically <laughs> i mean you you once said that shoreditch shaped the character of the company uh, can i ask what you meant by that did i mm. okay <laughs> um well i'm not sure what i meant um <laughs> i mean by by being in shoreditch i you know i behaved in a certain way but 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 perhaps i uh, I went to Shoreditch because I wanted to behave in a certain way. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the rent was nothing. You had, um, there were no great expectations of anything or anybody. Um, I would sit there on a Saturday and not expect anybody to ever walk in the door. Um, uh, it, You know, it, like I said, I opened it really more as a, a place to, to have stuff and to make stuff and put mm. it in boxes and give it to people. So it, it, just organically grew into what it became um like i i never really had a um a structure or a plan yeah yeah ashamedly i suppose but maybe that's why i'm still here and there's a lovely quote from the writer uh nick compton in a profile of you in hole and corner magazine where he hmm. compared you to terence conran and he said that conran was a natural retailer who also wanted to make things whereas hmm. you made things and also wanted to retail i mean do you agree with that Yes, but I did like retailing. I mean, it, it 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 was something. It was always in the back of my mind. I wanted a, to. I really wanted to have a shop so I could sell Leatherman tools and and I could sell you know Mont Blanc pens and I can sell Japanese gardening tools. Just things that I liked. Um, and and I liked people coming in and buying stuff too. Um, and there was another big difference between me and Terence Conrad. I I never had a great ambition to accumulate huge amounts of money. Um, but uh, yeah, but that took a long time to open up the retail side. But if it comes back to basics, I prefer to make stuff. Yeah. I, mean, I seem to remember Matthew Hilton telling me that Conran was hugely important in the success of the Balzac, uh, which he, as we said, he designed in 91. I think, it, was it Conran you saw at Cologne and then sales took off? Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, the the very first business I ever did with them was when I was in Westbourne Grove and Priscilla, his sister, mm. um, bought some old Pell desks from me and... Uh, and a couple of old drinks trolleys, and she encouraged me to, to, you know, she said, well, why don't you start to make these things? She was really good, Priscilla, actually. I really liked her. Um, and um, so she kind of got me into Conran. Um, and then, yeah, I think I think Matthew's right. I think Terence did see it at the at the Milan Fair. Um, and, yeah, they were, it, it was, they were really helpful to me uh, in many ways. Mm. Mm. Sadly, we don't do any business with them anymore. Mm. I don't know why, but... There and how are. important was Balzac to the company? Uh, it it was the first piece of upholstery that we tried to make, and that it was very important because apart from the fact it was a great design, it was very different from what was on the market. It did start to sell quite well. It took two years actually to sell one. Actually, mm. it was that was quite interesting. Really, two um, years? Wow. Yeah. When he said, when Matthew said that Terence saw it in Milan, but it might have been two years after we first made the first one, or it took them two years for them to buy one after that. Um, it was a, yeah, it took a long time. Um, 
but it got me into upholstery and it made me realize that upholstery was something that we were we could do easily and we were good at and it was perfect for our kind my kind of profile in terms of because you could just make one if you wanted to you didn't have to commit mm. to making hundreds of things um and the people who made it when they we started to work with them and make other pieces of upholstery it was just two guys um uh, who worked out of an old chicken shed in Norfolk. And then they gradually got a bit bigger and had in, employed two more people. But they reached their early 60s and said they were going to retire um, and shut the factory. And um, and I just said, well, you're, you're, you're nuts. Well, you can't just shut it. You know, you, uh, can I buy it off you? And then, then stupidly, I had to pay them a huge amount of money to buy <laughs> it off them. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so it was, it, it led me into what we really do, which is make up holstery. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it seems to me there've been three distinct phases of SCP. Uh, you had those kind of exciting, explosive early years, which we talked about, and that was followed by, it seems to me, uh, by a more grown up period where you, uh, you're very much in the contract market. Terence Woodgate's public seating seemed to pop up in airports all over mm. the world. Mm. Uh, and latterly you've become more interested in craft. Uh, when I first saw you stocking Donna Wilson's kind of very patterned feminine mm. work, it, it came as mm. quite a shock. Mm. Uh, have these all these step changes been deliberate? Uh, well, they kind of just dawn on me. You know, they kind of it, it's a gradual thing. It's not there's no kind of great marketing decision that this is the new market we should get into. It's it's you know whether it's through boredom or you just kind of you reach the end of 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 a of a period of working that you you feel you need to move into an another area which perhaps has been neglected or i we, i neglected um you know I, I vowed i'd never have a cushion in the shop and then <laughs> i started to have the donna's cushions and then we decided to to do some work together but but th things kind of uh happen you know i got on really well with donna we there there was a, a, a i saw some old welsh blankets we found out that there was a the the Welsh there were a few mills in Wales that still were able to make these double cloth blankets, so we contacted them and then we went down and stayed a couple of days down there and had a look at what they did and then Donna came back and did some designs and it so things kind of tend to fall into place and um, and also you kind of get there's I suppose the other aspect is is, is that you suddenly realise actually there are much better bigger companies who can do what you do better what in in a way of of better in a way of being successful you know so there's only so long you can stay pioneering something before other companies can make it cheaper mm. uh, which happens all the time so i suppose that that's always going on um but um, i mean the airport seating with with terence was a complete accident that wasn't a, a, an intentional step that was me being stuck in an airport with um Jasper and uh, the stock in uh, Arlanda Airport in Stockholm with Jasper and um, because Heathrow was shut because of snow and we were kind of laughing about it and then we were sitting at this airport seating which in those days was kind of massively big business for big Italian companies and we both looked at it and thought well this is really easy anybody could make one of these seats these aren't that sophisticated and um, when I got back to London I asked Jasper if he would design one and he said no and um and I got then, of course, I realized that Terry, who's much more technical and um, as an engineer, mm. uh, uh, would be much more suitable. So he and I just did it kind of as a just to prove a point. And um, 
and then we took it to Walkertech and Foster's happened to see it. And it was so it was a kind of, again, one of those lucky breaks. Um, mm. We didn't make much money out of it. We didn't we, we we didn't pursue it because it was it was something you had to really industrialize for. And it was not something that interested me to go into big business that way. I mean, working with all these different designers, presumably you have to work with them all in a different way, I take it. Uh, yes, but it's the, the designers I've worked with. I mean, I guess that they're, they must be of a type because they want to work with me. Some, you know, they obviously they all work in different ways. Some don't even really listen to what you're talking about and just present you with the design and there it is. Um, and with a perfect drawings with all the components and you just go away and get it priced and you either make it or you don't. Um, other designers like feedback, like to work with me and and kind of have my influence on something. And other designers just do a kind of sketch and then we have to go away and do all the technical stuff for them. It's um, But I suppose that there must be a willingness on their part to want to work with such a small company as 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 us um and um you know not many of them i would say can live off the, the royalties most of them then go and work for other companies where they can probably be more, more commercially successful that's not to say that you know we you know that's what our business is about so we are generating good sums of money in terms of royalties for designers but um uh they most designers usually come to me in their early days and then if if they're good and they they can they can get spotted, they then go and work for um, bigger companies where the rewards mm. are greater. Mm. Is there a link, uh, Sheridan, between them all, between Jasper Morrison and Donna Wilson, other than yourself? Is this is this something that unites them all? Oh, is this something you know the answer to already? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I don't know. I I don't know. It's um. Uh, I can't answer that question. I don't know. You'd have to ask them. I, I'd like to think that it, it's quite a close relationship um, and uh, I'm on speaking terms with all of them still and whether we still work with them or not. And and I don't expect all of them to want to work with me now because people's lives change. But um, I would say that there was a kind of camaraderie and friendship in our world and I think we're very lucky in in the design world in particular that that people tend to have good relationships with with each other and and they 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 are friendships as well as business relationships um particularly in that design scene that that I came out of of the the late 80s um and it probably still goes on now uh, amongst you know newer generations i mean obviously you know i've been around a long time so it's quite <clears throat> i don't really know what's going on anymore in terms of you know where where is the design scene in london now with with um, emerging designers who've who've graduated in the last two or three years um it hopefully it's the same as the world i i was in at the time mm. you know which is i thought i still think it's a very nice world i thought um, I, I feel really lucky that you know that i work amongst it and with these people so uh, over the years you've been kind of keen to spread into other parts of the capital you had a store in westbourne grove which i think opened mm. in 2007 mm. uh, what mm. happened with that um it just didn't work it was um uh it it's funny i thought east london is very you know east london is a long way from west london and um uh the, as the shop turned into a real shop in in curtain road um <laughs> i realized that um 
you know, there were lots of people who were coming over from West London to buy um, things. And, you know, London's a big place. And I thought, well, you know, why don't I go back to where I used to have my old shop? My old shop was in Westbourne Park Road. So but I thought Westbourne Grove, which used to be back in the day, the great street where all the antique shops were. Um, and um, we opened a, a beautiful shop. Uh, and I was hoping, I just wanted to sell furniture there, but we it just didn't work. So we we put in accessories and lighting and it, it was successful, but it was... It was not as successful as I wanted it to be, really. It ended up being quite hard work. And then you know, rent review came along. The landlord virtually doubled the rent. Um, so I just thought, well, let's um, call it a day. Mm. Um, but, but now you have this spot on Pimlico Road. So, so yeah, why which is there, a why now? Um, uh, over the last, sort of, I suppose, five, ten years, I've noticed that you know, our market has become fuller and fuller, and there are lots of lots of companies, able companies now, who are able to produce modern furniture. Modern furniture is now the norm. It's you know, um, whereas back when I first started, it wasn't. Mm. Um, so everybody caters for that modern market, um, and it's highly competitive. There's there's there are endless companies who can get the look very quickly from after going to Milan. Um, so it's it's highly competitive. And, and I just thought, I, I can't have this race to the bottom. You know, there's no point me doing this. Um, you know, if I come up with a new design and make a hundred of them, somebody else can do something very similar, but make a thousand at half the price, which is fine, you know, which is what I, I, I like to see in the furniture world in terms of being able to give people products at the right price. So gradually we've moved away going the other direction which is you know i i sell a lot of things in america and so on my visits to america i was noticing this whole kind of new american craft movement that was had been occurring for the last sort of 10 years of particularly in lighting um and in furniture very independent a bit like the british scene was in the 80s has been kind of developing in america um but in America, they can do things in a much more confident way, in a much more business-like way. So we started to bring over some uh, of this this very expensive handmade lighting from companies like Roland Hill and Apparatus. Yeah. Um, and it started to work over here. The architects and interior designers, you know, were finding it was fitting up an area that they wasn't being covered by anybody else. Um we started to do the same with furniture, which was to go up as opposed to go down to make things, to add value to a product, to, to justify why it costs more. Of course, your market kind of shrinks in terms of who your audience is. And the, in the UK, for, for th this kind of either one-off or limited production um, furniture or craft pieces tends to be high-end residential and the high-end residential market is based in west london and pimlico road has always been the street where the best um antique in my day when i was an you know an antique runner going around you know with things in the back of my car trying to flog them to other dealers um pimlico was pimlico road was the best street for that and um it still is but in a it's changed it's now much more a lot of contemporary stores down there, Pinch is down there, Rosuniaki is down there. Um, and um, so we opened up a little shop there last year um, and found, you know, to cater for this market that probably wouldn't even, haven't even heard of Shoreditch, let alone go there. Um, <laughs> and um, 
it, it's been quite successful until we had we had to shut. So um, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's an it's another world. But in in a way, it's enabling me to do what I think more interesting things. You know that we did we could do the ceramics of Flores Vubin, which you know they're not cheap, um, and but we can put them in the store there, and people luckily can come in and buy them. Um, mm. Mm. So it's a, a you know, and we've done a one-off shows with Reiko Kaneko ceramics, which we probably wouldn't have done uh, in uh, Curtain Road. So it's opening up a, a, a new world, really, which um, is kind of a return backwards in a way for me in terms of going down more the sort of um, you know the, the the more small production run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've seen you described as a, as the rock star of the British design industry. No, or, not, that's Tom. No, Tom Dixon. You're thinking. Well, you know, it, it's out there. It's in. It's in print. <laughs> or, or on another occasion, as it's grandee, uh, there was quite an in jokey show at Somerset House a few years ago that Carl Clerkin uh, mm. co-curated called the Learned Society of Extraordinary Objects that cast you as the kind of society's head. Yes, um, I'm interested <laughs> in how you see yourself. Oh well, I don't see. No, I think. Zeef Aram is more the kind of grandfather of British design, I think, more so than Terence Conran. Um, you know, he was the guy who really introduced modern furniture to mm. to the UK, I think, in the 60s. Um, I, you know, I just happened to be around at the right time, I think, and was very lucky that I've been able to, you know, it all just kind of fell into place. Um, uh, you know, it, it would be nice that people think I'm nice, you know, and I and, and I've done the right thing. Hopefully, I do more right things than wrong things. Um, but I don't regard myself as a grandee. I also don't regard myself as old. That's the other thing. Which is very difficult. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing at that. <laughs> to, to come to terms with, yeah. So I mean, we're coming to the end, Sheridan. You'll be glad to know. Um, but uh, I'm keen, interested to find out. I mean, obviously, we're in this extraordinary situation at the moment. Mm. But maybe before that. Um, where do you think the British design industry is? I think I said before, I'm not quite sure what's going on with the newer generation, the younger generation of designers who've emerged in the last sort of five years from design schools and things. Um, and maybe they can tell you where it's going to go. But I do feel that it's a bit of a vacuum. I mean, I, I you know, I said before that I, I thought I, I was lucky to have been around at the right time, at the right place. Um, but it does seem slightly dull at the moment i mean i think uh it would be interesting to think that uh you know well there's been a great resurgence in craft um which i you know i know you've been involved with um uh, uh, uh and in parallel there's this this been there's this has been the designer maker thing that's been happening in america too so i think there is a kind of resurgence in some ways and uh i, I think there's an opportunity for designers who perhaps in the old days would think they could get a job in industry. There's an opportunity for them to get a job by making things themselves or working with more like galleries on the kind of collector's level. Um, uh, I, I can't imagine an industry coming back over here, but maybe who knows with what's the way things are. I mean, maybe that's going to be encouraged that we should be more self-sufficient again. And, and um, you know, Britain is a nation of engineers. There's there's some fantastic engineering companies that can make things. Why can't they make competitive furniture? Um, mm. 
Do you think the best design minds, young design minds, want to go into furniture now? I mean, you can go around the graduate shows and not see a stick of furniture nowadays. Well, I don't blame them, and I, I would not encourage anybody to. You know, whenever a batch of students come round to whether we're setting the brief or something, I always try and, you know, I'm not being rude or, or jokey about it. I just say, you know, don't have aim ambitions to be a furniture designer. You're a designer. You know, there's there's lots of ways you can apply your mind to to things differently that other people can't do and whatever it is that you talent you have you don't don't feel you have to produce something physically you know um there's lots of ways that you can apply yourself but but at the same time we still need stuff don't we people people feel good with stuff around them so um hopefully there will be designers who will still want to make things but i i can understand i mean it goes in it there are again you probably know had a better view about it than I do, but the, being a furniture designer was very fashionable. It became a fashion for quite a long time, and yeah. but, it, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the only thing that designers have the, you know, is a sexy thing to do anymore. There's lots of other things you can do. And finally, Sheridan, I, I'm sure you've got things to do. Uh, this is the final question. What are your future plans? You're not going to retire anytime soon, are you? Well, I'm kind of like forced retirement at the moment, and... Um, Although I'm not, I spent more time in front of a computer in the last couple of weeks trying to sort out how we go forward. Um, no, I'm not. I mean, I, I I think it's going to be interesting, I suppose, to put it in one way, but it's going to be quite hard, I think, coming out of this for a lot of people. And I, I think lots of companies are taking a kind of cold look about the way they do things. Everybody is. And, um, you know, you could turn that round as a positive that it, that it will make people do things differently um, uh, in the future. I mean, I don't know. It, it's funny over the last um, nine months, I've been wondering whether I should change the way we retail anyway. Where and, and we've been thinking about whether actually we need to be in Curtain Road. Whether whether we we've been we priced ourselves out of that area um, and that. You know, we should be doing more online, and we should have, um, <clears throat> we should relocate to a, a a place which is more of a destination. Um, so it's always been in the back of my mind to possibly remodel the way we do things. Um, uh, but we, I mean, I still want to carry on making stuff, and you know, I've got a factory in in Norfolk with twenty five people up there um, who've got fantastic skills, and um, that there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't continue to be making stuff that people can buy in the UK and abroad. Very good. Well, Sheridan, that's a lovely place to leave it. Um, okay. Thank so. you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No, a pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure to get away from this computer. I'm sat stuck in front of <laughs> Yeah. Hopefully and, uh, go and do some early retirement gardening over the weekend. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks, Grill. <laughs> and, uh, and, and good luck when, you, when we all get out of this. Yeah, good luck to yeah, everybody. Yeah, really. Yeah, let's hope we do. And to learn more about Sheridan and SCP, go to scp.co.uk. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And if you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening. And I hope you're all staying safe.